I, I said last week that I'm very excited about this series and that thankfully has persisted. <laughs> uh, I'm still very excited about the series that we're going through uh, Genesis together. Genesis is this um, misbehaving, I don't know what, like a better word for it. It's this ancient and beautiful and, and terrifying collection of stories at the very beginning of our Bible. And as I said last week, it, it contains some of the most controversial and misunderstood and most incredible stories in scripture. Uh, and so I'm excited that we're spending um, six weeks going through this book together. Uh, something that we have to keep in mind um, in this series is that uh, this seems really obvious, but Genesis is an ancient book. And as is the case with pretty much any book of scripture, but certainly an ancient, ancient one like, like Genesis, we have to try as we're, we're going through these things together, we have to try to see them through the eyes of ancient Israel. Um, we have to try to see it through ancient eyes. If we want to take it seriously and respect it, we have to try to understand how its original audience would have understood it. Um, and then once we know that we can try to extrapolate out what it might mean for us here and now today. So that's what we're going to do each week of the series, going through different stories together. Uh, and this week we're talking about the garden of Eden, which you've probably heard of uh, Adam and Eve. Uh, there's a snake, there's some fruit that a lot of people just assume is an apple, but it doesn't say that anywhere. It's just fruit. Uh, there's so much packed into this story. Uh, it's chapters two through four of Genesis. There's so much that we could talk about. There's so much that we need to talk about that we're only getting through the first half of the story tonight. The second half will be next week. We're only getting to the beginning and the setup. We're only going through chapter two tonight. And I'm not even going to talk about everything that we possibly could talk about. Um, there's so many things that it pains me that we're not going to have time to talk about that I love nerding out about. But uh, there's just so much good stuff in there. Uh, so real quickly, last week, we talked about Genesis 1, which is the story of God creating the heavens and the earth. It is, if you're familiar with it at all, the seven days of creation uh, where God progressively creates um, light and then the sky and then oceans and land and then plants and birds and fish and animals and then people. And we said that the point of the story was not to give us information about how God created the cosmos, but to give us to tell us something about who God is and who we are. And we talked about how it is, that story is in conversation with um, some of the major cosmologies of Mesopotamia that were around at the time. Cosmology is just a fancy word for saying your understanding of reality, how the universe is ordered. Um, so last week we ended with God creating everything and then resting. And we're gonna pick right up from where we left off. This is Genesis two, uh, starting at verse four. It says this, this is an account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Hold up. Didn't I just say that we talked about that last week? But that's, it's saying, get ready. We're about to talk about the creation of the heavens and the earth. Why are we about to talk about the story of creation again? And as you'll see, it is a story of creation and the events are all out of order compared to what we just talked about in chapter one. Why do we have these two different, seemingly different stories of creation slammed together one chapter after the other that don't seem to agree? This actually happens a lot in, in uh, ancient Near East writing and in the Bible, which is ancient Near East writing. Uh, it, it, 
certainly in the Old Testament, especially in the first five books, um, various traditions, stories would uh, normally form orally and be passed down. And in doing that, if you've ever played, um, dang it, what's that? Thank you. (laughs) Telephone. If you ever play telephone and the message deteriorates over time, you get different versions of the same story. And ancient Near East editors we're much more concerned about preserving the various traditions of a story than getting a story that cohesively all fit together. So they would often put the different versions right next to each other. So it sounds like the same story is happening over and over again with a slight difference to them. Sometimes big differences that just don't add up. We talked about this a lot when we did Exodus last year. Um, they weren't concerned with the contradictions. They, they felt like the variations added richness, but There are some people that think that's what we have going on here between Genesis one and two, but that's not necessarily the case. Uh, There is a stream of thought that says that these are not originally two parts of the same story. In fact, the story that we're looking at tonight in Genesis two is probably the older of the two stories. They're two different stories with two different areas of focus. They have overlap because they're both about uh, God and creation and humanity. Uh, But, but, they have a very different focus and very different feel about them. Genesis one is all about how great God is and about uh, kind of the the majesty of his creation. Genesis two feels totally different and shifts the focus to be more on humanity, specifically Adam and Eve, who uh, as we'll see become this foreshadowing of the story of Israel. So Genesis one starts out talking about God in these very lofty terms. And then Genesis two shifts really hard to kind of hone in on the story of Israel, starting with Adam and Eve. They're different stories with similar, but not identical areas of focus and therefore communicate different messages. The messages don't contradict one another, even though the sequence of order of events is not the same. The messages that they convey still fit together, but they're not identical. So just wanted to clear that up in case you're like, I thought we did this last week. Here we go again. There's a little bit of that happening. Continuing on, we're picking back up in verse five. It says, now no shrub had yet appeared on earth and no plant had yet sprung up for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth and there was no one to work the ground, but streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Something to know in this conception of uh, the universe, rain doesn't appear until the flood which we're going to get to in a couple of weeks, which is going to be crazy, but I'm very excited about it. Um, if you remember from last week, we talked about uh, ancient cosmology, again, how the universe is ordered. They believed that all of land was floating on the waters or the deep or the abyss, which symbolized chaos. Basically the land held back chaos to keep us safe. God put the land there to keep us from drowning. So when you see streams, when it talks about streams coming up from the earth, that is that deep, that abyss coming up onto the surface of the waters. That chaos that is otherwise threatening and dangerous to us, uh, when ordered by God, brings life, brings sustenance, brings the ability for um, things to grow on the earth. Continuing on, this is now verse seven. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. 
The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden, there, was, there, was, there were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So we're going to pause here real quick. So God creates a human being and it says he breathes the breath of life into him. That it can be understood as God breathing his spirit into this man. And that's what brings him to life. The other thing that's important to know is that uh, we're told that there is this place that God has created called Eden. Eden means delight, which makes sense if you know the story at all. Um, we're also told that it's in the East. This isn't very important to the story, but it's something that I learned this week that I think is super interesting. And if you're a nerd like me, you'll appreciate it. If not, you can just send it right back. Uh, when in ancient Israelite writing, when they talk about directions, they are both talking about cardinal directions, but also time, which is very interesting. Their, their words for the direction in space are also their words for directions in time. And our brains are oriented where north is like where we base everything off of. We're oriented north and we kind of figure out where we are from there except we live in Colorado, so we're oriented west. Um, in uh, Israel, in ancient Near East, they were oriented east. And their word for east, uh, or their word for north or south were left and right. Also, if they said, if you said something was in the east, you meant that it was in, you could also be saying that it was in the past, which is very wacky and like kind of weird to wrap your brain around. Um, so in this story, when it says that, Eden was in the East, they could be saying literally the East or they could be saying long ago, or it could be both. Anyway, continuing on. Uh, this is verse 10. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. And from there, it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first was Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah where there is gold. And in case you wanted to know that gold of that land is good. It is good gold. And while we're speaking about gold, the aromatic resin and onyx are also there. In case you wanted to know that. The name of the second river is Gahon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Asher. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. What? what? That's a lot of information about rivers. Why do we need to know that? Like is the guy who wrote this just like a river nerd and is just sort of geeking out about these various rivers. Uh, as we know, any details that are ever included in ancient writing like this are all very important. We read this and I, I will admit the first time I read this this week, I just skipped over this once I figured out what was going on. It's like, this does not sound important On to the next thing. Uh, so throughout kind of modern history and archeology, span there has been a big effort to locate these rivers, these four rivers. Um, we know about the Tigris and the Euphrates, those still exist. The Pishon and Gihon are unknown to us. We don't know what those are or where they are. Um, there are some people believe that uh, those two rivers dried up long ago, so we can't find them. Um, there are some that say the world looks totally different post flood, so these rivers no longer exist that could be true. Or it could be that this story, that this description that we're getting right here isn't meant to be taken to be a literal place where these four rivers meet. Any of those are valid. 
As I said last week, no matter what I say about this text, I will make somebody mad. No matter what anyone believes about this text, other people disagree. There's lots of room for disagreement in this. I am teaching you what I think makes the most sense, but you are like, (laughs) there's room for lots of disagreement. I believe that this description is not meant to be taken literally, but literarily. It's a description given for literary and theological reasons. And here's why I think that. Each of these rivers are associated with a significant place. So Pishon leads to Havilah, where in case you wanted to know, there is good gold. Uh, We don't know where Havilah is meant to be today. But we know from a later story in Genesis, Havilah is on the way down to Egypt. So Pishon is sort of uh, associated with and goes in the direction of Egypt. Gehon is mentioned only one other time in the Bible and it's the water source for Jerusalem, which is the capital of what becomes the kingdom of Israel. And it's where they build the temple. The Tigris, which we do know still have today, uh, it says is to the east of Asher. Asher is the capital of the Assyrian empire, which conquers and exiles the Northern kingdom of Israel after they split in two. And uh, 150 years later, um, we have what is associated with the Euphrates river, this last river, which is Babylon. Babylon is actually associated with the Tigris and the Euphrates because it sits right between this point where the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers are the most, are closest together. Babylon, 150 years after the Northern kingdom falls, conquers and exiles the Southern kingdom and destroys the temple and uh, brings most of the population back to live with them in Babylon. So all of these places that these rivers are associated with are significant for Israel. Jerusalem is obvious. It's the capital of their kingdom, but all three of the other places that aren't Jerusalem, Egypt, Assyria, and Babylon are all locations where major empires in history rise up all of which at some point house a all or a large portion of the people of Israel. So right here in like seven verses into the second chapter of the Bible, in this very early moment of scripture, we have this foreshadowing of the history of Israel. And it's even the, the, the way that the, the order that the rivers are described is presented in chronological order, Egypt, Jerusalem, Assyria, and Babylon. It's amazing. That's so cool to me. Uh, But beyond what's being communicated in that sort of history of Israel is that the life given to the rest of the world springs from this original design of Eden. God wants to bring the life of Eden to the rest of the world. It has always been the hope that, that life would spread out from God's people. One of the key characteristics of, of what it means to be uh, a part of Israel to be a child of God, uh, as we'll see in a few weeks, is that they they were blessed by God to be a blessing to the rest of the world. It wasn't that these are God's favorite people that he does all the nice things to them and that's where it ends. He blessed them so that they would bless the rest of the world. And so what's being communicated in this very early stage of scripture is the, the intent and foreshadowing of Israel becoming a conduit for the blessings of Eden to the rest of the world. That's so freaking cool right there at the beginning, all about some rivers. And it's just this little detail that we could just easily skip over and never ever see. And that's a bummer. My whole life I have, 
just been like, that's great guy. I'm glad you love rivers. I have some friends. I mean, I have nothing against rivers. I think rivers are awesome. I love sitting next to rivers, but in the ancient near East, the river was life. And this is conveying all of those rivers that provide life for these major civilizations all spring from Eden, from God, man, that's awesome. I get pumped about stuff like this. If you can't tell on to verse 15, and we're just going to finish out this chapter, the rest of the story, the Lord God took the man and he put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any of the trees in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground, all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. The Lord God made a woman from the rib that he had taken out of the man and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. So God takes this man that he's created and he puts them in this garden, in this land of delight that he has created. And he lets him eat anything except for this one tree that's called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then God realizes it's not good for this guy to be alone. We all know that that's true. It's not good for this guy to just wander around and eat fruit by himself. He needs something to do and people to do it with. So he brings before the man, all of the animals. And uh, you've probably heard this before, but what's significant about the man naming the animals is that in the ancient Near East, if you name something, you not only have authority over it, but that doesn't just mean like you, you're the boss. It means you are now responsible for that thing. You are to steward that thing. So the man is taking responsibility for creation. And then God provides someone for, uh, someone to do all of this work with this man, someone to create community, someone to create family, someone to create more human beings. And the first woman is formed. There's a lot we could go into about the whole rib thing and all of that stuff. Uh, but what, what's important is to notice that the, the, sort of the whole theme of this story is God creating this idyllic, delightful land where everything is just in harmony. Everything is beautiful. Everything is perfect. God and humans and creation all live in harmony. God at the very beginning has created this place where the flourishing of creation and the flourishing of humans is possible. So what's the message here? Why is this in there? How would ancient, how would an ancient Israelite hear this and understand it? Again, we have to put this in context of the, the cultures that surrounded Israel. This story, like our story last week, is in conversation with uh, competing cosmologies. Specifically, this story is in conversation with the story that is called the Epic of Atrahasis, which I talked about last week, but could not say Atrahasis for some reason. 
I practiced a lot this week, got it down. We're good. So Genesis two through nine are in conversation with primarily with this story called the Epic of Atrahasis. Um, this is a story that the rest of the major powers of Mesopotamia all had in common. It, it was a Sumerian story that became an Assyrian story that became a Babylonian story. It was just a story that kind of persisted throughout time um, that formed the cosmology that was just taken for granted in cultures that uh, at that time by the majority of Mesopotamia. It, it would be similar to how a majority of us today, if I asked you, what does the universe look like or even just what does the earth look like? It is sort of taken for granted. This isn't hundred percent the case, uh, but it's, it's taken for granted that most of us believe that the earth is a globe, that we are in a solar system orbiting around a sun and that our solar system is part of a larger galaxy called the Milky Way. And then that there are trillions of other galaxies out in space that is expanding. That's just something that we kind of take for granted that we all understand the, the universe is ordered this way. Everyone at this time believed the cosmology laid out in a couple different stories, one of them being this epic of Atrahasis. And the differences between the cosmologies of Genesis 2 and the epic of Atrahasis could not be more stark. So to fully understand the message behind Genesis 2, we need to know kind of the basics of the beginning of the story of the epic of Atrahasis. So it gets weird. I'm just warning you, but uh, the epic of Atrahasis starts after creation. The world has already been created. The universe has already been created, but there are no humans. In fact, I think the opening line is back when gods did the work of man. So, so it starts with the, um, there are three high gods, I'm not even going to attempt to say their names because I have some respect for myself and for ancient cultures, but it is the God of the sky, the God of earth and the God of water. They're all talking to each other. They look at the state of the earth and they're like, this looks like a lot of work to get this place in shape and we don't want to do it. So they create lesser gods and they put them to work. The lesser gods are treated horribly. They're treated like slaves. They're worked relentlessly day and night while the high gods all relax and enjoy themselves and high five about how great of an idea this was. They, the lesser gods are subject to backbreaking work, like digging the beds of the rivers that will become the Tigris and the Euphrates. They're laying the groundwork to allow irrigation and eventually agriculture so that the earth is cultivated. Eventually, as you can imagine, the lesser gods get fed up with their treatment. Like, what is the deal? Why are we the ones that have to work all day and all night? And so they rebel and they go to attack the high gods surrounding their houses and demanding a fight. One of the high gods is like, okay, let's just eradicate all of them and start over. But another high god says, hold up, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, fellas, listen, these lesser gods are right. This is terrible work. It's not fun. That's why we didn't want to do it. So let's, let's figure this out together. So they come to an agreement to create humans to do the work, the backbreaking work that the high gods didn't want to do. And now the lesser gods didn't want to do. But in order to create humans, the high gods say, fine, we'll do this for you, but you have to sacrifice one of you. So they kill one of the lesser gods one who is described as having intelligence, which is, I guess the others didn't, I don't exactly know what that means, but it's an important idea. Uh, 
Then this mother goddess appears out of nowhere. She wasn't mentioned before. She takes mud and then she mixes it with the blood and the guts of the murdered God and fashions humans out of this mixture, seven males and seven females. Because this God was had intelligence, humans are basically just inherit intelligence. It wasn't on purpose. It was an accident. It was just mixed into this mixture. They institute marriage and give the humans rules around marriage so that they'll procreate and make more workers. And then they leave them to do their backbreaking work of cultivating the earth. That's how a majority of the world assumed creation started, humanity started. That is very, very different from what we just read in Genesis 2. Let's talk about some of the differences. First in Genesis, there is one God. One God does all the work. (laughs) He waters the land. He lays the rivers. He causes the vegetation to grow. He plants the garden. He doesn't even ask the man to plant the garden. He just says, hey, I've done all this work. Will you just pick the fruit and eat it? In the Epic of Atrahasis, there are many gods who hate doing any work. They create humans, uh, God in Genesis, God creates a human out of the ground, but breathes his spirit into them. They're created, man, the first man is created with intention and honor. Versus in the Epic of Atrahasis, humans are created out of mud and guts. Again, intelligence was not intentional. It was just a byproduct of the God that they killed. They were created as the lowest beings. In Genesis, man is, in, man is put in paradise, given dominion over all of creation. In the Epic of Atrahasis, humans are put to backbreaking work that no one else wants to do. In Genesis, God provides a partner. God institutes marriage so that the man and the woman can engage and work together so that they can create family. They can provide community together. In the Epic of Atrahasis, they're given marriage so that they can create more workers. In Genesis, humanity is seen in this perfect harmony with God and the rest of creation. In the Epic of Atrahasis, humanity is a slave labor left alone to do their work with the gods at best being indifferent towards them as long as they did what they were supposed to be doing. We'll get into it. Like this story continues to kind of dance along with Genesis and we'll talk about it more and more. Um, And they sort of run into each other and diverge over and over again. It gets really interesting. So what are we to make of this? What what does this matter? Original intent and design for humanity, the original conditions that humanity were put into sets a trajectory and informs how you live. So if you believe, if you go through life believing that you are a mix of mud and murder, you are accidentally given intelligence, that you're created to be a slave laborer for indifferent gods, that is absolutely going to inform the way that you treat yourself, the way that you treat other humans and value human life, and the way that you treat the rest of creation. And if you believe that your birthright is to be part of the prize of creation, that that originally mankind was placed in paradise and given dominion over creation. 
And that rather than being created to do work that is awful that no one else wanted to do, that you were created by a God who is committed to your flourishing. You are going to treat yourself and other people and the rest of creation very, very differently. Perfect harmony between God and humans and creation is not only possible, it was the original design. And extending that, uh, what, what the Israelites would call shalom, that sense of peace, that harmony, spreading the blessings of Eden to the ends of the earth is still the goal. Even though Eden is not a thing anymore and, and humanity looks very different, ancient Israelites who are hearing this story would understand that the original goal is still the goal. So the message here, what people would hear in Israel is you've heard that you are nothing more than blood and mud, that you were created to suffer and toil as slaves for these gods who don't care about you. But in reality, you were created with intention and love by the creator of everything. You were created to sit in a place of honor above the rest of creation, to cultivate it and care for it, serving a God who loves you and is committed to human flourishing, to male and female flourishing, to his glory. Perfect harmony between humans and God and creation is not only possible, it was the original state of the universe. And then according to the story, it all went wrong. That's what we're gonna talk about next week. So I hope you will come back as we delve into the story, the second half of the Garden of Eden, the story of the fall, which I promise almost certainly has more wrinkles and nuances than you have heard before. But you'll have to wait till next week for us to get into that together. Will you pray with me? God, thank you for uh, these ancient stories that helped reorient uh, your people back to you back to your goodness and your love. God, thank you that these stories have persisted throughout time and can remind us again that, that you are for us, that we were designed and created with intention and love and meaning and purpose. And that just like before, your goal is to spread the blessings of Eden to the ends of the earth through us. God, thank you for stories that capture our imagination and push us forward, even when they're thousands and thousands and thousands of years old. We love you, God. Amen.